When anyone opts out of the church, it gives us concern. But you saw the video there. Um, we are in a day and age in which young adults are opting out of the church because they feel distanced from the church because of the church's decisions. Today we're going to consider this a little bit further when Christians get it wrong and hopefully discover some ways in which we can get it right. Uh, we turn to a passage of scripture in the book of Job and I'll read the 16th chapter, the first through the fifth verses. Then Job replied, I have heard many things like these. You are miserable comforters, all of you. Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? I also could speak like you. If you were in my place, I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you. But my mouth would encourage you. Comfort from my lips would bring you relief. Most people in Job's day believed if you did good, God would bless you. And if you did evil, God would punish you. In fact, there are a lot of Job's contemporaries that are still around today, you may be saying. Do you remember the story of Job? It's an interesting setup there because this conversation ensues between God and Satan. Uh, God is bragging about Job and Satan wishes to put him to the test in order to prove God wrong. God believes that Job, under any circumstance, would not be found wanting in faith, that he would never curse God. And Satan begins to chisel away at him to see if that actually would be the case. He is a wealthy man, Job. He is from the land of Uz, not Oz, but the land of Uz. He has amassed a wonderful family and a great fortune. Most of all, he is just a righteous and holy person. He loves God and he centers his life on this. But when Satan lets into him, you begin to feel for this man so deep. Word comes by way of four messengers to Job that calamity has taken everything that he had by way of either invasions of persons into his territory or natural events that have claimed everything, all of his livestock, his servants that were tending to the livestock, his children were in a house celebrating when a mighty wind came and blew the house down on top of them. These words were overwhelming to Job. But he did not curse God. 
He was greatly saddened, but he did not curse God. But Satan didn't give up, and so he went back for permission to actually work on Job physically. And God said, you will not find the situation any different. And so Satan afflicted Job with these sores, this skin disease that put him in such circumstances that he actually said, I wish I'd never been born. He didn't curse God for his birth, but he said it would have been better. I would not have to be suffering so if perhaps I was never born. In fact, his wife at this time walks past him. So totally despairing at Job's situation and her own, she looks at him and shakes her head and says, go ahead, curse God and die. Get it over with. Get it over with. About this time in the story, three friends of Job's show up. And they simply do what you and I should know is best to do when someone is grieving and in such pain. That is just be with them. You don't have to say any specific thing. Just be there and be present. And so for a week they sat there with him and just were with him supportively. Job finally opens his mouth and begins to explain to them what his situation is. And this is where they, like we, make such a bad decision in regard to helping people. When Job explains his situation, they begin to tell him how his explanation is not full and proper. They were just using good common sense to deduce that if he was in his situation of loss, that surely he had done something to bring it on. Do you ever find yourself looking at other people in this way? You may say to yourself, no, I don't do that. I, I don't think in those ways. But think about it just a little bit because all of us have this tendency to look at someone's situation and say they must have brought it on themselves. Job's response to their offering that it must have been either his sin or his children's sin that brought all of this on was rightly irritation. He was tired of their advice. That's where it gets to this verse that I've read this morning. He says, I've heard many things like these. You are miserable comforters, all of you. Miserable comforters. Job goes on and on about how he has been a righteous person. And that there's nothing that is blame, to be blamed about his life. Finally, a young friend comes up to Job and says, 
I've been sitting in the background and listening to this. But let me tell you something that you may not realize. And that is that you're focusing a whole lot more on yourself than you are on God. And that is a sin. In fact, a great sin. Maybe even graver than anything that has been thought of so far. He wasn't egotistical, but he was egocentric. He couldn't think of anything beyond himself. God intervenes at this point and begins to speak himself. And it's interesting how when he interrupts, he says some of the same things they've already been saying about his power and his greatness. Were you there when I created the earth? Were you there when I slung the stars into the heavens? Were you there when I created Leviathan in the deep or the behemoth? You, were you there in the midst of all of this that I was doing? But in God's reply to Job, there's one thing that is frustratingly absent. And that is, he gives no explanation. Even though we know that Satan and he have had this challenge going on between them, he gives no explanation as to why these things have occurred. But you and I want to offer explanations. You and I are not satisfied with the idea that there isn't a reason behind every tragic thing that occurs in this life. And we can do much damage when we try to explain tragic events theologically because we have such limited information about God's divine work. There was a British pastor a few years back who wrote a little book called The Will of God. The pastor's name is Leslie Weatherhead. I don't know. Some of you may have that. If you don't have it, you can probably get it for a pittance on Amazon.com if you go and look for it. It's just a little, almost, almost more of a pamphlet than it is a book. But it is fascinating in the way in which he describes the will of God. In the book, he uses an illustration. He said that when he was visiting with a friend of his, an, an Indian friend of his, that this Indian friend was sharing with him about the death of his son from cholera. And in the process of sharing that, the friend said, well, it's... it's it's just the will of God that this would happen. Just the will of God. And Leslie said that, that he waited for a little bit. And then he said, now, he said, you've got a daughter. He said, yes, I've got a daughter, a precious daughter. He, he said, what, what would it, you think if somebody snuck into your house this evening with a cloth that was covered with the cholera disease and put it to her face so that she breathed it in while she was sleeping and the man jumped up and he said I'd kill him I would kill him if he did that 
And Leslie said, and yet, are you not accusing God of that very thing by saying that your son's death is in some way his will? You and I don't think about what we say. We don't think about the implications of it. Let some great tragedy occur in our nation. And who are the first ones that you see on television? Religious pundits that are sharing their take on what God might be up to. Do you remember when Hurricane Katrina came in and did its damage on the Gulf Coast? And how there, it was not just one or two, but so many got up and said, this is God's judgment on America and on the Gulf Coast in particular because of all that is going on there that's wrong. Do you remember this? It was on all the television stations. There was this pointing of the finger at any number of things that could be considered wrong for sure, but to point the finger and to say this event is the judgment of God against these people. When I was a child, my family loved to travel around. I think I've mentioned this to you before. We would go camping, and one of the places that we were on a trip to is the West Coast. We were not going to miss New Orleans, and my father wanted to break us in well to New Orleans and one of the things that we did I must have I guess I must have been about 12 years of age when we made this trip one of my one of the things my father wanted us to do was to see the French quarters and to specifically walk down Bourbon Street and I can remember walking down Bourbon Street and I my family had gotten a little ahead of me and I was standing in front of a doorway that really opened my eyes and a lady came out and shooed me away she said you move on Sonny you're too young for this stuff and uh, it was an awakening for me of all that goes on on Bourbon Street but you know one of the most protected places in New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina was Bourbon Street and the French Quarters. Now, if God was intending to do damage to the worst of maybe who we are, his aim is poor, don't you think? You and I have got to do better thinking than we're doing. And be careful who represents us. Be careful. Because the world around us is watching and waiting and listening for our take on the big events especially. Jesus, as John recorded it in chapter 9, had his disciples 
approach him, there was a blind man there on the road. And they said to Jesus, they said, Who has sinned, this man or his parents, in order that he is now blind? Interesting choice they gave Jesus. It's either got to be him or his parents that he ended up in his situation. I can imagine Jesus shaking his head and he just simply said, neither, neither. Luke records the story of Jesus reflecting on Pilate having put to death a group of Galileans for whatever reason when they came to worship they came to offer their lambs to God they somehow by their presence in town offended Pilate and so Jesus says that their blood they were killed their blood was mingled with the blood of the sacrifice that they were offering. And Jesus asked the question, do you think that they sinned worse to bring that on? And Jesus also brought to his disciples, he said, and what about those that were killed, those 18 people that were killed when the tower of Siloam fell? You remember that? That was an event that marked us all. Do you think they were extra special at sinning? Jesus said, no. Jesus didn't offer an explanation for why it might have happened. You and I are not so good with accidents and natural disasters when it comes to God's will. It would be better if we kept our mouth shut than to say the wrong thing. As children, we are coached in theology. We sit at the table before our meals and we say, would you say the prayer for us today? And the child will lead. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. By his hands we are fed. Give us, Lord, our daily bread. But it raises a lot of questions. If God is great and good, then why do these tragedies occur? The name for this conundrum is theodicy. And to tell you the truth, I have no good answer to that. Books and books have been written on the subject. There are those who try to reconcile the issue by saying that after God created the earth and set things in motion, that he stepped back to allow things to continue 
as the world spun on its axis. Now, I ask you, do you believe that? Don't you know God to be more engaged? But you see, others suggest that God controls everything, everything that goes on. For him, everything is a part of his will. Like this marionette, this puppeteer who is gauging at any given moment what somebody is doing here in this place and what somebody is doing there and when natural disasters will happen and who's going to be in the midst of that. His management of the sphere of the universe, not only the earth but the universe, is something that he does from his heavenly domain. Do you believe, though, that God controls every atom think about this just a minute do you believe that every moment is under his control do you believe that every drop of rain is under his control do you believe that every wind is under his control do you believe that every bolt of lightning is under his control and every earthquake is under his control do you believe that every tsunami is under his control. We are in a dangerous place when we allow ourselves to believe that God is the puppeteer of all creation. I'm not calling into question in any way his sovereignty. I believe that God is sovereign, but for some reason, I know in my heart that He refrains from managing, micromanaging this universe in order that we might, for one, experience free will to come to him on our own, but also experience part of the, the beauty and the sadness of what creativity is all about. You remember that the Apostle Paul wrote when he was penning a letter to the church in Rome. And he said, all things work together for good for those that love the Lord. Now, does that mean that for those that don't love the Lord, things are going to be particularly worse for them? That's not what he was getting at. The Apostle Paul was saying, all things work together for good for those that love the Lord. He's talking about those that love the Lord here. And he's saying... That regardless of what you encounter, those that love the Lord will always be drawn back to the beautiful mystery of God's love for them. In fact, 
Let me dip a little bit further into this passage because the Apostle Paul gets very specific about it. He says, who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It wasn't that Paul had not ever encountered those things. Oh, he had encountered far worse than you and I will ever see. But the wisdom that he was giving was that it wasn't affecting his concept of God's love for us. Do you remember how Joseph, who had that coat of many colors, processed this toward the end of his life? You remember he ended up in Pharaoh's court and in his favor became second in command. And he was this wealthy individual and finally, his brothers who had sold him into slavery and lied to his daddy that he had died out there, at, uh, they came to him. And when he reconciled with them, he said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Now, ultimately, in the story of Job... God blesses Job. But even that is not what the story is about. What the story is about is our relinquishing control on God. And our giving up the idea that we have to know or that we might know what he is up to. In any given circumstance. Gathering for communion. We receive this mystery. Of Christ present with us. Jesus points to God. Who does not prevent every tragedy. But out of much evil can bring good. Somewhere we have to find a place to believe and represent a God. Not one who is uninvolved, nor one who overmanages. but to believe that God loves us enough not to take away our free will to love him back. This is a theology of faith and hope and love. And believe me, the world is watching to see how we think about God. 
As we come together for communion in this place, let's remember that Christ gives himself to us in order that we might know God better.